I look back at, for example, this a 60-something-year-old woman who uh, was covered. She was a grandmother. She was a widow. And I was telling her about what queer means. And she asked me to repeat that again because she wanted to really listen to what it meant. And then when we were done with that training, we were walking and she told me, I think I'm queer. That moment of a 60-year-old grandmother who's a widow was really life-changing to me to hear that. And then I had so many emotions internally about her saying that, but I wanted to keep a straight face and just told her, okay, because I didn't want to make it a big deal. You know, you're queer, great. And she said, you're not going to say anything. And then a couple of minutes later, she said, now I know I didn't work out with my husband. And that's a husband that she lived with until he died. Hey, I'm Tag, the chief exec of Gay Times. I've always been interested in real conversations. And beyond my life at Gay Times, I want the same connections and understanding that you do. I've always been fascinated with queer people across our community who have blazed a trail in their own unique way. In music, activism, film, fashion and more, these inspirational LGBTQ people have smashed through the gates of their industries, refusing to take no for an answer. Believe it or not, I'm not a journalist. So get ready to uncover real stories, unfilter the conversation and enjoy some very unscripted moments. This isn't going to be a one-way conversation, and I might find myself in the hot seat too sometimes. This is Tag Talks. In this Gay Times original series, I'll be joined by well-known faces for one-on-one authentic conversations to learn about their unique journeys, how they created space in their respective industries, and became inspirational figures. Why? Because representation matters. In a world where four out of five LGBTQ plus people, that's all of you, say you need more representation across the board in all walks of life, you may well be following in their footsteps very soon. Today, I'm joined by human rights defender, Amir Ashur. He is the founder of Iraqueer, Iraq's first LGBTQ plus human rights organization. Hi, Amir. Hi, Tag. How are you? I'm really good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm currently in Malmö, Sweden, uh, but in the middle of moving to the US. Exciting. And how long have you been in Sweden? Um, On and off, about four and a half, five years, with two years in between in the middle of living in the US. And are you excited to leave? Is it like bittersweet? Yeah, definitely bittersweet, I think. On one hand, uh, Sweden is definitely a home to me. Every time I arrive at the airport, I feel more calm and settled. Uh, On the other hand, I do think it's a bit too slow for me. So I'm excited to do something (laughs) somewhere more fast-paced, basically. Amir founded Iroqueer in March 2015 as a safe space and advocacy group for the rights of the LGBTQ plus community. Now six years old, the organization has six main members and a network of over 600 Iraqi LGBTQ plus people, the majority of whom still live in or around Iraq. Tell us what Iroqueer is and the sort of journey to founding it. And I guess what inspired you or put you in a position that you knew that you had to create this organization? 
So basically, I was working for two international organizations between 2012 and 2015. And we traveled throughout the country to try and identify queer allies and queer people to basically uh, empower the queer movement in Iraq and try to start something. And we've traveled through at least nine or ten Iraqi cities and we couldn't find even one person who identified as queer, even though I made it a point that I tell them that I was gay. Obviously, I don't dismiss the security concern, but Mm. no one was willing to disclose that information. And then the other part was being discredited for being an international organization doing this type of work when I was from Iraq. So Mm -hmm. that was really one of the main reasons that pushed me to start Iraq Queer, which is Iraq's first national LGBT plus organization. We focus generally on advocacy, education, and direct services. We engage with governments to put pressure on Iraq to recognize human rights for queer people. We do radio programs, videos, and other educational resources to raise awareness about queer people in Iraq. And we provide direct services, whether it's the safe housing that we provide or the medical services or legal uh, counseling that they might need. Either we do it ourselves directly or do it through uh, other partners in Iraq. Did it feel sad that you didn't have anybody that could talk about their identity? Or was that sort of like an inevitability as part of growing up in Iraq? In a way, all of the above. But I think the strongest feeling was really feeling heartbroken that those people have been living their lives without, some of them without even thinking that they could be queer, uh, without daring to think that they could be queer. And many actively oppressing their identities, actively practicing violence, basically, against themselves mm. because they've mm. been trained by other people from in the society to actually do that, if that's how you feel. It's not like they don't see it almost on a daily basis where there is violence against people based on their gender identity or sexual orientation or just different thinking sometimes, not even mm-hmm. related to your sexuality. That is a constant reminder that you do not belong here. Right. So I think that in a way, that heartbreak and anger towards a lot of the society and all of the government is really what pushed me to try and do more because... When I was growing up, I didn't have any queer Mm. role models in Iraq. That was so unacceptable to me. What was the reaction to you? Because you said, like, you made a point to sort of come forward, which is amazing, and say, actually, this is who I am. What were some of the reactions to that when (laughs) you talked about who you were? You know, to be fair, a lot more love than I thought I would receive. That's good. Okay. But the overwhelming majority of the responses were very negative. Some were just, you know, making queerphobic comments, you know, and then some people who would attack my queer identity and queer sex and queer relationships and your families who didn't raise you properly and Mm -hmm. you have no purpose in life and you're a degenerate, basically. And other people took it to an even higher level of actually physically attacking and threatening Mm. me. So Mm. it was a roller coaster, let's say, because it had all kinds of things. 
I want to repeat that there was a lot more love than I expected, mm-hmm. simply because I didn't expect much. Because sure. everything around me said, this will be all hate. So I'm grateful for the love that I've received as well. Yeah. I mean, just to going through that, let alone anything else, is a huge like emotional weight. Do you think those experiences like give you resilience in life? How do you think about those times? I'm actually talking about this with a therapist. Obviously, talking about it helps because I do think that there is a lot of trauma that I have. But after talking about it for a long time now, I do believe that there is no way that it's just going to go away. It's a part of my mm-hmm. existence. And it's actually in many ways both a part of my dysfunctional side, but also my driven side. The past that I've lived and those actions that I've seen and the words that I've heard, which I continue to hear and I continue to see, both drive me to do more, but also are why sometimes I have weird habits that are really not the most healthy habits in the way that I have some relationships, for example, in my life or the trust level that I have with a lot of people or all kinds of things that Mm -hmm. make it definitely clear that this is not going to simply be something that you heal and move on from. You just learn to live with it better. Do you know what's really funny is that I've gone through a trauma response that I'm kind of coming to terms with 10 years later right now as well in therapy as well. Of course, completely different circumstances, and I'm not trying to kind of draw likeness between them, but I think the similarity is that basically someone told me something that happened, and I had no recollection of it. And I went into this like crazy domino effect of realizing that stuff that happened during my childhood around my identity that was so traumatic, I'd completely blocked out and had no memory of it. When the person was telling me about my life, I was in disbelief. I was like, that never happened. I'll never remember that. And I think I'd originally thought that that was fine and okay. And weirdly, of course, when it comes then back to you and you start realizing it, you understand how that's impacted you as a person very subconsciously and the way that you behave and your decision making. Yeah, it's a weird process to go through. Oh my God. But happy that in different ways we're kind of on that path now rather than it just being something that you're like, that's not important, (laughs) just keep going. (laughs) I mean, for for a few years, I've actually told myself that's not important. Therapy is just a Western idea, Uh, which, you know, to a large (laughs) extent it is. (laughs) We're We're still getting to know therapy in Iraq. It's not the most socially acceptable thing that you would do. <laughs> when you met Tag Warner, who was like, I'm in therapy yeah. every week. <laughs> and you're like, it's classic white boy, what's he doing? <laughs> but I have to say, honestly, like the links that I've been able to make after going to therapy right. for a few months, it's really been eye-opening in so many mm. ways. So I definitely think you have to be ready when you go to therapy because if you're not then you're just not going to be talking and my therapist always says you know working with you is so difficult because you're so forthcoming you're very clear about those things and i'm thinking my guidance with you needs to be a bit different and she does human centered therapy which people can read about more but basically 
she is not afraid of sharing her own experiences too, to be able to make connections. Because to me, that's more powerful for me, at least, you know, other people can choose what works for them. For sure. I mean, I'm very similar. I think I find that empathetic response so much easier to understand than someone talking specifically about me. With the experience growing up, another thing that I really like, especially I think in like Global North, we love a narrative of like, (laughs) poor person from abroad or, you know, somewhere else having a dreadful life, poor them. And then whenever that person shares some sort of positivity, we kind of think it must just be some delusional thing that they've made up in their head. Talk to me a bit about some stuff that you loved about growing up in Iraq. What kind of did you do as a kid, I guess? Like, what was your life like? Obviously, we've covered the fact that I've had a lot of trauma when I was a kid and growing up in Iraq. But at the same time, mainly because I grew up in a very open-minded family and specifically my mom, being a very powerful woman in her daily life, living the way that she wants to, that really allowed me to explore a lot of things in my identity. For example, when I started realizing that I'm gay, I didn't really have shame. And some people think, oh, maybe you've blocked it. Even now, after going to therapy for a while, I didn't have shame. You know, I'm maybe one of the lucky ones that didn't have it, but a lot of people expect that, oh, a gay guy who grew up in Iraq definitely has shame, which maybe is true for a lot of queer Iraqis, but it wasn't true for me. Even though my mom didn't know that I was gay, she always told me and my siblings to be who we are, and if someone steps on your toes, step back on their toes, basically, to make sure that they know that you're not going to accept injustice or someone that will just come attack you and you stay silent on the side. So I think these things that my mom has really led by example saved me the struggle of processing shame and processing guilt. I did have some guilt because of the society. I did have a lot of fear because of the society and even my family, even my mom. I still didn't know for a fact how she would react But I did have a liberal upbringing, which gave me the opportunity to explore a lot more. Playing tennis on the side with my best friends, listening to Celine Dion and, you know, translating the lyrics to her songs in my bedroom (laughs) when my mom is trying to call me to have lunch, but I can't hear her because it's like a concert in Madison Square Garden. (laughs) So let's have some lyrics translated. What's your, let's do a Celine Dion song. What do you like? Have you heard my voice? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, just say, what about like, I mean, I know River Deep Mountain High is like Tina Turner that made that famous, right? But it's... No, not in my world. Celine Dion made that song famous. (laughs) Okay, River Deep Mountain High, can you translate it? You don't have to sing it, just just tell us what that would be. Uh, River Deep is بعمق البحر, or Nahar actually. Mountains high jibal. Amazing. I think one day we need to find a way to get you and Celine Dion in a room 
and you can teach her some lyrics. <laughs> so she can really connect with her queer Iraqi fans, of which there are so many. So, oh my so many. God. I'm not joking, there's so many, I know that. Yeah, it's like that's what we're raised on. Queer Iraqis <laughs> are growing up with Celine Dion, Whitney Houston, and Mariah Carey, which to be fair is like almost every queer guy in the world, but Celine Dion to me is like a religion. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> with your relationship, especially with your mum and your family, do you think without that environment, you would still be where you are today? I truly don't think so. Because it was such a fundamental period of my life. And again, it's not like my family told me anything about queer identities, mm -hmm. but they've told me so many other things about other things that were relevant to my queer identity. So I don't even think that I would be thinking the same way. I do also want to give credit to my best friend that I've met when I was in seventh grade. And he's the main person that I've been able to talk to about everything. He's the first person I came out to and all that. So I think he also takes a lot of credit. But the way I think is also to a large extent thanks to the environment that I grew up in provided by my family and the environment we had at the house. If you were growing up today in Iraq, what would be the main differences from your experience? I think there are a lot more resources now than before. When I was growing up, I learned to use the computer and the internet when I was 10. At the time, it was really a privilege. It was the year 2000. So having an email in 2002 was like, what's an email? And having, you know, Yahoo chat rooms and all these things, that was my outlet. That was how I could right. maybe find other people that I could connect to. But now I think there are so many more resources and so many more platforms. A lot of queer, uh, younger queer Iraqis are definitely more educated now than I was at the time. And I'm really excited about that. At the same time, I do think Iraq is now really divided into two groups, one really conservative and one that is trying to mm -hmm. break free, which can lead to a lot of clashes between the two groups. Before, the violence was more invisible. Now it's visible. Mm -hmm. So that could make a lot of people more afraid of what could happen. Believe it or not, under Saddam, for example, there were queer-friendly coffee shops and streets in Baghdad and other cities. Now these places have been actively targeted for the past 20 years almost. I think the idea that there's queer-friendly coffee shops, right, at a point in history, I'm guessing is something that people would immediately just go, nah, definitely not, not a thing. Yeah, it's like the minute people hear queer rights in Iraq, they feel like they've heard something about Mortal Kombat or Call of Duty video games, where it's all like fight and guns and all these things, which sadly, we do have a lot of violence in Iraq. We're not going to deny that. But at the same time, it's not everything. I think, you know, for specifically for queer people, not every queer person in Iraq is rejecting their identity. Not every queer person in Iraq lives or has a family that's queerphobic. And I'm one example, but I know so many other people, they're very supportive and very loving of their children. And they've showed me a lot of love because of the work that I've been doing. So 
It's still not the norm that parents are supportive of their children. But when they say Iraq is a queerphobic country, I think that's a very unfair statement to so many progressive mm -hmm. and supportive families and people in the society. When I set up Amplifund, which is the kind of gay times charity, and we started speaking to Amir about um, Iroquois being a partner of that, I remember that being a conversation that we just immediately came together on and went like, ah, like a light bulb <laughs> moment. We understand that perspective. Totally. But I find it so painful, frustrating, sitting in boardrooms in sky-high office towers in central London with so much privilege in that room telling me what the experience of a queer person was in X country or X community, yeah. completely based off just like pulled together assumptions from something they read in the news on the evening stand in 2004. It's not even an assumption, but they were just beyond convinced. They wanted it to be negative. There's that kind of superiority that people bring to the table of it's so terrible for them. And then when you meet other LGBTQ identifying people that are like, oh, we have it so good here, but bless them, those poor people. Yeah. It's so awful for them. And I'm like, that creates so many issues. That in itself is creating a structure and a power dynamic. When we talked a bit about activism, I remember being really opened up myself. I think I, it's fair to say you've taught me so much and I love that about our relationship. I learned so much from Likewise, you. Likewise, <laughs> you know that. Iroquois quickly evolved into an LGBTQ plus organization that focused on three key areas, education, advocacy, and direct services. As Iroqueer grew, Amir's profile was rising not just in Iraq itself, but on the international stage. And with that came its own set of learnings and challenges. As you began traveling across the world with your advocacy and activist work, how were you received? How do people speak to you? And what were their attitudes? And how over time you maybe came to your own understanding and realizations of why they were speaking to you in a certain way, what that meant to you, etc. Take us through that. There's so much to unpack with this topic <laughs> because it's so many layers on a personal layer about the assumptions that some people have about queer people from certain countries. And then I come to Sweden and they tell me things like, but aren't you glad that you're in Sweden now? Or mm -hmm. things like, you know, yeah, this is Sweden now, so things are different. And obviously things are different in every country, every aspect. No country is alike in every way. But at the same time, the level of discrimination I've faced based on my ethnicity and perceived religious beliefs were a lot higher here, actually non-existent in Iraq, and only existed when I lived in Sweden especially because it's such a homogeneous country. And then you get questions from people who believe that they're being very curious and want to learn about the work that we do in Iraq. But then they ask you questions like, your family didn't accept it, right? You know, they've already assumed it mm -hmm. and they just want me to confirm. Oh, no, they've decided for yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, the story with my family couldn't be further from rejecting me. They're so supportive of me and my partner and everything I do in my life that is just ridiculous that they've uh, been <laughs> making these assumptions. 
In the you know more advocacy environment, there definitely have been people who are extremely understanding, very, very supportive, both from the international organization community, but also from governments and UN agencies. And they've really tried to do everything they can to give us the platform to deliver our messages, to do advocacy on our behalf. They've A lot of them have been really amazing. But there are a lot of problematic people and groups in the international community that think they believe in human rights and equality, but already misuse the privileges they have in life and mm. already pay attention to the power dynamics and try to abuse that in a way or mm-hmm. another. I think it's one of the, those lessons that when you learn it and you kind of come to terms with it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. But I think I had, personally, I went through that journey of realizing, oh, like everything I was taught about as a kid, which is like, all charity is great yeah. and pure. All philanthropy is is for completely, you know, it's not about ego, it's all about the right thing is not always the case. And that's not to say that not a, a huge amount of it is. When my eyes were open to that was so, not disheartened, but just like, wow, fuck. Like, it's a wake-up call. There's a lot of play. It's a huge wake-up call. And when you start as with any sort of like ignorance kind of thing, when once you realize it, you can't unrealize yeah. it. And you start seeing it and you start realizing why people are in it, what it's doing for them. People are using their position in really like an abusive way. And I think that for me was a big, big wake-up call. Absolutely. And I had the same experience when I was applying for asylum in Sweden, when the interviewer started asking me extremely personal and invasive questions. And I, you know, that was another example where I was able to put a stop to it. And I said, if that's, these are the questions that are relevant in your opinion, then I don't want to continue this interview because I was applying as a political refugee, not as on my personal identity. And then that also made me think, oh my God, how many queer people have actually answered every single question about every small detail of their personal lives? Because the alternative would be being sent back to your country, which many of them could actually face violence and death even. So the stakes are super high when you're in that room. And that is still happening. In Sweden, one of the most progressive countries, as they claim, about gender and sexuality, they're still asking about the most personal, invasive details of your life, uh, of your sexual Mm. life even, back in your home country. I think it's probably one of the areas of our, you know, combined LGBTQ plus community that we haven't, I really believe this, we haven't even scraped the surface yet. Absolutely. I don't think as a community, we have got to the point in our existence to be able to step back and start asking those really difficult questions around whether it's harassment or sexual misconduct or abuse of power. I think that's kind of ready and waiting to come out at some point in its own sort of movement. When Me Too really picked up momentum a few years ago, suddenly everyone had their own sort of story to tell. And I know so many people that had their own stories to tell. Talking about Iroquois and when you set it up, You recently made an announcement that you're stepping down as executive director. Yes. Which is very exciting. On reflection, 
has it had the impact that you kind of originally thought it would have? Has it been more impactful? How do you look back? <laughs> um, I really didn't have a ton of expectations when I started it because there was so much that needed to be done that I felt overwhelmed thinking about what expectations I should have. So it was easy to have higher results than the expectations. That being said, I think the response to me leaving has been very heartwarming. People talking about how Iraqweer helped them accept who they are, how they didn't even know what being queer meant until they've read some of the resources that we've produced, how they now are able to maybe speak up a bit in their small circles because they've seen other people who work at Iraqweer speak up publicly against the government. I'm so grateful to have been in a position where I could have that kind of impact. And I look back at, for example, this 60-something-year-old woman who uh, was covered. She was a grandmother. She was a widow. And I was telling her about what queer means. And she asked me to repeat that again because she wanted to really listen to what it meant. And then when we were done with that training, we were walking and she told me, I think I'm queer. That wow. moment of a 60-year-old grandmother who's a widow was really life-changing to me to hear that. And then I had so many emotions internally about her saying that, but I wanted to keep a straight face and just told her, okay, because I didn't want to make it a big deal. You know, you're queer, great. And she said, you're not going to say anything? I told her there is nothing to say unless you have a question. She said no. And then a couple of minutes later, she said, now I know I didn't work out with my husband. And that's a husband that she lived with until he died. So it's a wake-up moment for her, an aha moment for her that took decades to reach. So I think the biggest impact from what I see is just people knowing who they are a lot more than they did before we started Iraq Queer. And I really hope this self-awareness is going to be something that will drive them to contribute to uh, continuing this movement, to share their stories with other people, because there are hundreds of thousands of people who have some kind of queer identity who need to hear more stories. I hope that everyone will continue this, you know, sharing their story kind of activism mm. to help people see that they're not alone and that there is some kind of power in numbers. It's so powerful. I mean, one of the most effective forms of oppression is to isolate the individual and to inform them and repeatedly tell them that they are a party of one. It's so effective. So when you can counteract that by saying, actually, people like you do exist. They might not be near you right now. You might not know about them, but you're valid. You exist. That is just such an incredible, powerful thing. And I think the fact that you've managed to be able to do that for people in Iraq is just, I mean, you know, unbelievable. But the impact that will have made on people's lives, it's most amazing thing is that you'll never even know. I hope it's bigger than what we know, because... I think what we've done is we started this, but we haven't achieved it. And it's going to be up to people 
because one organization is not going to be able to change everything. So it's up to those queer people inside Iraq to recognize their own power, their own responsibility too, because there is a shared responsibility that a lot of us are you know, running away from. I do think if we all took the responsibility, obviously there is so much risk that comes with this responsibility, specifically in countries like Iraq, but we have mm. to take it because that's the only way. Otherwise, we'll continue, you know, both facing the threats, but also not having anything change. If we speak up, we will continue facing the threat, but maybe things will change, either for us or for people who come after us. And that's the most amazing thing about what I think you've managed to do in the time, because if you can start off that small chain reaction, even if it's on a local level where people are having individual one-on-one conversations in the same way that you did with like one friend that they trust that proliferates and of course in the way that something like that happens it kind of multiplies throughout in 2020 iroquois published a comprehensive media report commenting on the state of lgbtq plus representation in iraqi media The report was widely lauded among international communities and landed Amir a place on primetime television in Iraq. I remember watching a video of you relatively recently, I think in the last year or so, on Iraqi television doing an interview. And that for me was one of those times where you were talking about career identities in such a calm owned way and speaking about the fact that you exist as a person, you have a great understanding of yourself and that peaceness with yourself. Why is that important? And also, I guess on the backdrop of that, how do queer people normally, quote unquote, get represented on Iraqi television or news, etc.? And how did that differ to how you were showcasing yourself? Sadly, the small representation that we've been given by the Iraqi media has been having queer people being portrayed as these weak, ashamed individuals who are speaking to a therapist or a religious leader on the TV channel, asking them, please help me change. They're usually not the most informed individuals about their own identity. So even using queerphobic words to describe themselves, saying, you know, I'm a faggot, I can't help it, I am abnormal, I'm uh, mentally ill. That's how they would describe themselves. So you could imagine years and years of that narrative being shared. And then the host, the other guests are all attacking that individual to make that individual even weaker, even smaller, even more ashamed, what would queer people who are watching it feel? Right. It's not, they're not going to feel the most empowered individuals in the world, let's say that. There were a few aspects that made me feel like I need to take that responsibility. One, obviously, I'm representing an organization, so I need to be professional Two, which actually was the most important, was the personal aspect of it, because I'm gay before being an organization founder or leader or whatever. So to me, I wanted to show, like you said earlier, that I know myself so well 
that your attacks will actually not change anything in the way I think or the work I do. In fact, by you screaming, you show that you don't know yourself that well and you're threatened by <laughs> me knowing myself. I remember one of them said, but you're completely rejected in the society. You have no place. Everyone knows the society is against you. And I said, there is no such thing as the society is against you. There, you have no data. You just say that and you assume that 36 million Iraqis agree with you. So just also attacking their mm -hmm. lack of resources, lack of evidence, just playing on people's emotions. And I even told them that it's really a betrayal for you as a politician to just use emotion to manipulate right. people and not tell the real story of what queer people are and what those identities mean. And if you think most people are against it, stop the violence and people will not be for it anyway. Why do you need violence if people are against it? So they made no mm -hmm. sense when they were talking. And I tried to highlight that, that their statements were contradicting each other. One of the things that was the main goal for me from that those queer Iraqis seeing me on TV, hearing that story, speaking clearly and confidently about my identity will hopefully help three people. Mm -hmm. Each of them could help one more person and that will create the snowball effect. But it's an extremely mm -hmm. difficult decision every time I go on TV because my family still live there. And they deal with the social pressure and stigma that comes with me being on national TV in Iraq. Actually, every interview is like a whole decision for me of evaluating the pros and cons. But at the end, I come to the same conclusion. I think one of the ways that you can tell something is having an impact and a positive impact is when people that are not trying to further the cause, try and limit your speech and put you on mute. And I think one of the things that happened was, if I'm right in saying, the broadcaster published the video immediately afterwards and then decided to remove it, which I think says so much about the way that you were able to speak, the calmness, the evidence-based approach that you went down rather than using heightened emotion and anger. Because really, when you're on a television screen and you're screaming, chatting at someone, the only thing that ever says to me is that you're scared about something in yourself. <laughs> that's that's all that is. Absolutely. That's all that is. Absolutely. And I think, as I said, the fact that they decided to then remove the video, in a way, even though it's disappointing, is a testament to how well you perform in those environments. Yeah, I mean, luckily it was broadcasted live. So at least a few million people have seen it live. My point when I go to those interviews is not really to attack them because I actually have sympathy for them. I'm thinking your world is so limited that anything can shake it. Your beliefs are so vulnerable that my existence can really make you feel like you need to defend it because I'm so comfortable in me being gay. What you do and what you say that's not going to change the fact that I will continue posting about my gay life on social media, which 
you know, especially in Iraq, people are still not really used to, even though I've been doing it for a few years. But you have another media outlet that says, here's this gay Iraqi who's now married in Sweden, (laughs) even though I'm not actually married. And that's their headline. So it's like still creating shock. But to me, it doesn't matter if you say I'm married or divorced or single or in a relationship, I'm gay. I'm the same (laughs) amount of gay if I'm single and if I'm in a relationship. Yeah. Not going to be more or less. It's so true. I mean, yeah, I remember having a conversation with the, I guess, the law law enforcement police here about something that happened, which was, you know, targeted around my own identity. And I was saying that my response as well, actually, to the other person was just compassion and trying to understand what they were going through at their point in their life. And I remember their response to that was like, well, don't you feel angry? (laughs) You should feel really pissed off about this. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't. Because as you say, I said, nothing that happened or can happen is going to change me. I just think, well, what's going on in your life for you to have to respond in that way? It's difficult to get your head around, I think, and like Absolutely. remember that because it's easy to go back into that response. But if you can, then yeah. I want to tell you about a brand new podcast coming to Gay Times. One of the most fascinating parts of my role at the company is having access to our historic archives spanning five decades. A long-running feature by the name of Media Watch critiqued and commented on the rampant homophobia and transphobia in our press. Unfortunately, that prejudice is still rife, even if a little more underhanded. So the team at Gay Times has been working hard to bring a new audio version of Media Watch to a whole new generation. Hosted by the incredible Shamir Sani, make sure you check out the new series today. The Telegraph published an article stating, the government's proposed ban on conversion therapy would criminalize Christian parents who want to stop their children seeking transgender treatment. First one from The Telegraph is very, I'm not going to say shocking, because if you're queer, these things often become quite numb. You're just like, okay, yeah, there's someone, someone else being outrageous. But yeah, it was, it was a difficult read. There's this constant back and forth between religion and the LGBTQ community. And so when it comes to conversion therapy specifically, it's like there's this big focus on Christian aspect of it. For me, it was, you know, growing up in Pakistan, it was that if you found out that your son was gay, that you would take them to the imam for help to save you from the curse, so to speak. In this piece, if you were to look at what they're saying, is being posed as something that is very, you know, caring when it's not in in any facet of the imagination. This is the point where we put all our cards on the table for Do Ask, Do Tell. Everything is open. They can be work, personal, funny, stupid, I don't mind. But three questions, three answers. You're the guest, so I'm going to let you go first, and you can ask anything you want, and then I'm going to ask anything that I want of you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so exciting, but also so difficult to play this game with you because I've asked you everything I want to ask you in our personal conversation. You can ask them again if you want to air my dirty laundry. (laughs) Actually, I think I haven't asked you this question. What gives you hope with the work that you do? I think one thing that I can't seem to ever shake is seeing really young people and kids have a full 
ability to present themselves in the way that feels the most true in that moment. That for me is just like joy. It's just such joy because it's something that I never had and it's something that I'll never have because I can't turn back time, but I'm okay with that. I don't need it. I don't need to kind of go into this like fantasy world of like reliving my childhood and going through my like gay pubescent teenage thing again or whatever they call it. Like I just find seeing that in other people makes me just want to get up and work even harder. Because when you're 14 or 15 and you're in those like really icky years where actually like your counterparts have learned judgment and they've learned prejudices and they've started to absorb that and you can just so freely present yourself in a way that feels really authentic in that moment but know that that might change as well whether that's like dressing up in a certain way or talking or putting something on whether it's like makeup I don't you know whatever it is or loving something freely and talking about it you might not care about that in a year or two, but that doesn't matter. That feels authentic now is so amazing. I was about to say, I know this is a podcast, so people can see the spark <laughs> in your eye when you're talking about this. Okay. What was your first celebrity crush? Like, who did you fancy when you were younger? <laughs> Do we have like three hours? Because I had a lot of crushes. <laughs> okay. I mean... Uh, What's the one that jumps to mind first? uh, The entire Italian national football team around 2000. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, they were were just so good looking. (laughs) This year's team is also very good looking. So that's why I follow their games every now and then. (laughs) But they were all very good looking. I love that. That's great. (laughs) Did you have any interest in the sport or was it just mainly to look look at the guys? I think it started as interest in the guys and then I developed an interest in the sport because of the guys. Great. Great. There you yeah, go. You know. It was like a gateway drug. It got exactly. you into sport. <laughs> <laughs> you see, gateway drugs are not all bad. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. Um, Next question for you. What do you think you would have done if you didn't go into the queer culture world? Oh my God, that's a really good question. (laughs) My other total nerd love is transportation. Just really, really like the whole world of aircraft and trains. And that's what I started at. So I started on check-in for British Airways when I was 15. And then worked my way up through the ranks in an airport. (laughs) Although I kind of took a step back from that, I do think there's something about the smell of kerosene, which is just so addictive. (laughs) (laughs) And there's something like so, I sound really nerdy right now, but there's something quite harmonious about the mixture of pure engineering yeah. As in like getting a ton of metal off the ground, which is just like bonkers in itself, yeah. added to this romance <laughs> and campness of air travel. <laughs> so yeah. I think if I could run an airline, I think that could be a good space for me. <laughs> it's still quite queer. <laughs> I don't think I've known this about you. I think I need to really? definitely unpack this okay. more <laughs> in our personal calls, but... I think, you know, maybe you could start a queer airline or something. Oh my God. Yeah, exactly. Combine both. (laughs) (laughs) Oh God. Okay, so is there any Celine Dion song that you think is almost sort of like slightly embarrassing that you love it so much? Because she's got some quite 
I'm going to put it out there. She's got some quite kind of interesting songs, sonically. There's some Be sort careful. of strange ones. <laughs> I feel like you're going to jump through the screen at some point. <laughs> don't, don't you come for her. Is there, any, is there any song of Celine's that like is almost slightly embarrassing to love? Or maybe that's a stupid question, because why on earth would you be embarrassed? Well, actually, for a while, every single friend, mentor person in my life made me think that I should be embarrassed of just liking Celine Dion, period. Ridiculous. Because she's so intense in the way that she sings. <laughs> she's so uh, intense. So intense. But I think people forget that I'm so intense myself. <laughs> so to me, I'm like relating to her. Yeah, and exactly. Actually, I've been rediscovering all by myself again the last couple of weeks. And I just think, oh my God, this note when she's hitting it, how did we go from that to, you know, with all due respect, singers now who mm. are just whispering and winning Grammys? How did we go, go from that to that? So now it's really hard to actually make me think that I should be embarrassed about a certain Celine song because her easiest song is like a masterpiece comparing to the songs that I hear now which might be another version of being geeky and awkward right, that I think right. <laughs> Celine Dion is timeless, but Celine Dion is timeless. Okay. So <laughs> No embarrassment. <laughs> her last album of like Courage and Lying Down and these songs to me are treasure. I need to keep them in a box if I could and keep them forever and ever. I love that. You've battered the question straight back <laughs> over the net. <laughs> uh, my final question to you is maybe a bit something more personal. What is something that you can't overlook when dating people that is, you know, just really important to you? Oh my God. Oh my God. That's such a good question. <laughs> I think there's some, I think, do you know why it's a good question as well? Because I think I've realized a lot recently. I think one thing in dating someone is. There's kind of two. I think one, the really easy one, which is a bit like that, is definitely like an ambition thing. I think I find that yeah. really attractive. Being okay with wanting to persevere all the time, I think is something that people find quite hard in me. I've often mm. been said like by past relationships, are you ever going to be okay just to stop? <laughs> like, yeah. is it ever going to be enough? And I'm like, mm, that's kind of who I am, so probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so like, if you're okay with that as well, I think that's a good match. But I think yeah. the other thing I've learned recently, which is a bit more nuanced, is when I date people, one thing I really value is them being comfortable in themselves and understanding of themselves enough that they don't look to place themselves mm -hmm. via pushing down, belittling, snarky, being a bit bitchy of other people. That's going to make me sound really earnest, but I find that as I grow older, less and less attractive. So when it's anything from the way that someone talks to like waiting staff to how they talk about their friends or their colleagues, if you can just be good in you, I think that's so incredible and you don't feel Absolutely. the need to contextualize who you are by all oh, them or being a bit snarky or being a bitch or being rude to waiting staff. I think that for me is like something that I've learned really recently and I'm learning that that's relatively rare. <laughs> so I'm not... <laughs> but there's... No, don't get me wrong. I loads of great that. people. Loads yeah. of great people like that. But yeah, I think it's it's just... It's, <laughs> it's going to make my search sort of like a bit harder, but that's fine. That's good. 
it's also not supposed to be easy. Like if no. you want to be with someone for <laughs> years, you have to make sure that you you share the same values and have the same foundation. So yeah. And I've already decided I'm going to just be married to my career for at least 10 more years. <laughs> Classic. Okay, my final question for you is, you will always be part of Eraquit, of course, you're the founder. And I think that although you're stepping down from your active role, it'll always be a part of you. But what are you most excited about in terms of stepping into your next chapter? Uh, thank you for ending this with a very difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I think the most exciting but also nerve-wracking part is really going back to being a student because I'll be going back to uh, school to study law mm. and I'll be studying at Harvard, which is an extremely competitive university. And you have professors who have written the books, basically, mm. and who have formed and shaped the law around the world, not only in the U.S., so there's a sense of excitement that I'm really going to learn from the best people in the world, but also being really nervous because, you know, I'm going back to school with a certain amount of experience and profile. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I need to really perform well all the got time. Got you, got you. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm a bit worried about that, but could also motivate me. I'm curious about what freedom from Iraq queer will mean. I haven't really thought it through fully yet. I think that will take some time, but definitely stay tuned for how I would feel about trying to not backseat drive, but also still support it as much yes. as I can. Well, there's an amazing resource around what you're going to do. And it's a brilliant movie called Legally Blonde. And I don't want you to watch it. <laughs> It's a fabulous, fabulous resource. <laughs> My version will be legally gay. So. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love that. Everybody, legally gay, Amir Shaw. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and talk. It's always like a joy. So thank you so much. I love you, Tag. You know that. And I love I know, talking I love to you. Too. Yeah, me too. And I think we should do this in like a year or something and pick up and we'll find out what Newfound freedom, maybe a bit of backseat driving, <laughs> legally gay, Amira Shaw, life and what harvest. Celine Dion songs will be released by then <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I've really enjoyed today as always. And I'm excited to see everything you're going to go on to do. And yeah, all the best with it. Excited. Thank you so much, Tag. I love chatting with you and I can't wait to listen to the other episodes. Tag Talks is a Gay Times original podcast. Subscribe and listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Make sure you're following at Gay Times on all major social media platforms for the latest LGBTQ news, culture, and entertainment. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Finally, make sure you check out Gay Times Plus, our membership platform for everyone in our community. Remember, you can find more information at gaytimesplus.com. Tag Talks is a Gay Times original podcast hosted by me, Tag Warner. It is produced by I1 Obinyan with production by II Studios. The production assistant is Ade Damola Bajumo. Gay Times original content is delivered by GTX, the Gay Times agency.